DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. It's great to be with you, Chris, as always. We're going to continue our discussion on the lifetimes and teachings of a remarkable man, St. Anselm. Yes, as we discussed in part one of our discussions, here was somebody who grew up in northern Italy and was then the kingdom of Burgundy, who made his way to northern France, entered the Benedictines, flourished as a Benedictine, and then, of course, became an abbot. And where we left off, uh, Anselm, having business to conduct as an abbot in England, found himself named the Archbishop of Canterbury. In uh, a, a time of great political upheaval, time of great struggle between the church and the crown in England, and as well, uh, a time of great intellectual vivacity uh, for the church, and Anselm uh, would certainly uh, leave his mark on both. Help us to understand his time as the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, this is a region you so beautifully explained in our last episode, but just for those who are, are hearing us maybe for the first time, Canterbury is located where? In uh, southern England, and it was the sort of primatial sea uh, for England. It was the most important sea uh, or archdiocese, of course, in, in all of England. And you could argue that uh, the influence of the Archbishop of Canterbury extended in many, many different directions across England, uh, but even uh, across the Channel to the continent uh, because of the holdings of the English kings in, in northern France. The Archbishop of Canterbury was someone who was immensely respected across the church and who had direct dealings, of course, with the popes. And whoever held that office wielded both spiritual but also great secular power. And as a result of those two realities, the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, they found themselves in frequent conflict uh, with the, the English crown. That's certainly going to be the case with Anselm. And, of course, uh, later on, we're going to see the great struggle uh, between Thomas Becket and Henry II, uh, so much so that the Thomas Becket, of course, was uh, murdered in his own cathedral by the Knights of Henry II. So it gives us uh, an idea of just how fraught with peril being the Archbishop of Canterbury could be. 
Here we have a man who is so steeped in that Benedictine spirituality, is has just flourished within the heart of the community. But he, because of his family background, he understood the dynamics of nobility. He did. Uh, he understood the, the inner workings of the feudal system. And you combine that with his long experience by around uh, 1089, uh, with the life of monasticism, but also the, the wider life of the church. He was, as you can imagine then, ideally suited uh, to become the Archbishop of Canterbury as successor to his friend and mentor, Lanfranc, who died in 1089. But consider that with the death of Lanfranc in 1089, the see of Canterbury became vacant. It took uh, some three years to pass uh, before a successful nomination could be made to the vacant see, in this case of Anselm, by William II, uh, the King of England, who had a long history of uh, seizing the territories and also the revenues of Canterbury by virtue of the fact that uh, he would not nominate somebody new. So Anselm that even though William II understood clearly he had to have an archbishop in that post. It was not going to be an easy one, in, in part because William was very determined that whoever was the archbishop of Canterbury uh, would be answerable to him. And as we talked briefly in, in the first episode on, on Anselm, investiture, the claimed right of secular rulers to bestow upon new bishops and archbishops and abbots of the symbols of their office uh, and thereby sort of implying fealty, uh, obedience to them. And from the very start, Anselm had to negotiate with King William the very precise conditions under which he was willing to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And negotiations, in fact, uh, took quite some time uh, for them to reach a, a conclusion that both of them were, were willing to accept. As it was, the English bishops grew so irritated with the situation and so desirous of finally having an Archbishop of Canterbury in place that they quite literally handed, forced upon Anselm, the crozier, which is one of the symbols of his office, and almost forcibly dragged him to the church to be installed. And as was the custom, he was installed as the Archbishop of Canterbury, but then within the feudal system had to do feudal homage to King William. And finally, in September of 1093, uh, was granted by the king control over all of the lands and revenues uh, that the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, was entitled to receive. So this gives us a little flavor for just how complicated uh, life was as Archbishop of Canterbury, so much so that he was not even officially consecrated until December of that year. And almost from the start, this reluctant Archbishop had to fight and defend the rights of the church uh, against the king. Let's move to the reason why St. Anselm 
is considered a doctorate of the church because yeah. his political leadership and his ability to be able to oversee that and to negotiate all the travails that that entailed are extraordinary and a worthy bookmark in the in the life of the church but he's remembered in great fondness because of the teachings that he provided the church uh, you know uh, as uh, he was uh, fond of doing Pope Benedict XVI reflected on uh, the, the lives of the great doctors of the church. And he stresses that uh, in Anselm, we have a, a wonderful example of that whoever intends to study theology uh, cannot rely exclusively on intelligence alone, but must cultivate at the same, same time a profound experience of faith. The theologian, according to Anselm, lives in three stages of faith, of experience, and of knowledge. And in that sense, uh, we owe Anselm an immense debt uh, for really picking up on something that Augustine was first developing, and that is faith-seeking understanding, fides querens intellectum. So in other words, it's the, an, a love of God seeking a deeper knowledge of God. And for that alone, uh, we owe Anselm a huge debt. Uh, but out of that flowed the desire, again, that relationship of faith and reason, of faith seeking understanding, of understanding trying to see through the eyes of faith. And as he writes, uh, credo ut intelligam. You know, I I believe that I may understand, and that relationship of faith and reason then gives the church a beautiful foundation over the next centuries to bring together those two seemingly disparate elements of a thought and of belief, of faith and of reason, and the movement that flowed from that, the so-called scholastic movement, was one that became one of the great hallmarks of medieval life and that produced some of the greatest reflections, meditations, and, and teachings on the mystery of the faith uh, from through the heirs of Anselm. We have, think of the, the incredible list of Thomas Aquinas and, and a host of others that we're going to be talking about. Uh, over over the weeks, the the great figures who followed owed a debt to Anselm for giving that very first foundation, and that alone is a reason why he is a doctor of the church. We can even discuss further his efforts to argue for the existence of God, and of course his reflections on Christ Jesus. Let's. A touch on some of that brilliance. Yeah, well, in, in Anselm, we have somebody who, as, as we have seen in, in our discussions, who took to the, the life of theology uh, with such enthusiasm. You know, he came to it pretty late. Uh, as we talked in, in our first episode on St. Anselm, he was 27 when he entered the monastery, which is pretty late. Uh, he was sort of old for that. And yet, uh, he certainly made up for lost time. And one of the things that he wanted to ponder 
was whether it would be possible to find, which was an, an ongoing argument, a single argument that would require no other for its proof than itself alone to demonstrate that God truly exists and that there is a supreme good requiring nothing else, uh, which all other things require for their existence. This single argument uh, was presented in two different forms. One was a work called the Monologion, in which he sort of took a look at everything that had gone before, all of different uh, forms of argument for the existence of God. But he was still searching for that one argument. And single argument uh, was then presented in another work called the Proslogion. And uh, that was traditionally called by medieval writers the Argumentum Anselm's Argument. It was given a slightly more detailed title called the Ontological Argument, uh, actually by the uh, German philosopher Immanuel Kant. And what he did in that argument, the Argumentum Anselmi, or the Ontological Argument, in several chapters of the Proslogion, was to create a structured argument that systemizes the existence of God. And it begins with a very simple argument, and that is, God is the being than which none greater can be conceived. In other words, if you think of what is the greatest thing that we can conceive of, well, logically, it has to be God. He then allows that to flow from that God therefore exists in understanding. He might have existed in reality, and therefore it is possible that God actually exists. A being that exists as an idea in the mind and in reality is, as he says, other things being equal, greater than a being that exists only as an idea in the mind. So he says, suppose that God exists only in the understanding. God might have been greater than he is, but the being than which none greater can be conceived is a being than which a greater can be conceived. So in other words, it must be a false God that exists only in the understanding, and therefore God exists. Now I know this is, um, it, it sounds very complicated, but we always go back to, uh, the simple reality that it's a basic structure, that God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. And Anselm devoted his entire book uh, to this basic line. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. That which can be conceived not to exist is not God, and it truly exists so truly that it cannot be conceived not to exist. And then from that flows, he says, there is then so truly a being than which nothing greater can be conceived to exist that it cannot even be conceived not to exist. And this being, he says in prayer, you are, O Lord, our God. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages. 
can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. It's a challenge for thinking. It is. And that, and, but that is the beauty of scholasticism. I mean, that's, that's what the scholastics give us, is this, this door that opens up the incredible capacity of the mind to ponder. Yes, yeah. What's, what's notable, too, is that here we have for Anselm uh, creating an effort to produce a satisfactory single argument to demonstrate that God truly exists. But two things. First, it flows from the wider theological enterprise of fides querens intellectum. In other words, faith-seeking understanding. But what, is, what does he do? The, the proslogion is very complicated. I mean, just sort of working your way through the argument, uh, it can make your head hurt uh, a little bit as, as you're trying to follow his logic. And, and in some cases, you have to read what he's saying several times. But what does he do? The proslogion is not a doctoral dissertation. He composes this in the form of a prayer. It is a, a, it is a petition. He writes as one who contemplates God and strives to understand the divine being's existence and nature. He seeks to understand what he already loves and believes uh, to reason out proofs for what is accepted through faith by proceeding in his theological inquiry via a, a kind of rational uh, method. It, it has to use the technical term. It, it's a methodological rationalism. In other words, 
he is putting into practice uh, through reason the dogmas of faith, but he does it with prayer. So he's combining faith and reason in a profound way. And he's seeing it again as a way of understanding the divine being, but in order to give proper worship to that divine being. In other words, he is truly combining faith and reason as a way of honoring and loving God. So his motivation is not simply a dry philosophical intellectual exercise. It's a way of understanding and loving God. That, too, forms one of the, the great foundations for scholasticism that really reached its climax, of course, with Thomas Aquinas uh, in the Summa Theologiae. But it is prayerful contemplation of God, but it is also putting all of our gifts in understanding him at his full service. And to be able to enter all this foundationally through prayer and then to give that premise, that's, again, why he would be referred to as the father of scholasticism, who would have, as you said, many sons, Thomas Aquinas, but also, uh, would you say, Bernard of Clairvaux, and many of the others who would take maybe a different track, but yet had that door open because of this ability to be able to, to ponder very deeply, philosophically, uniting that with study, and so many others. I mean, it really brings you into a depth of mystery. Very much so. And it is an answer uh, to one of the great questions of modernity. Uh, the argument uh, of Anselm, the ontological argument, remains today, especially in the, the field of the philosophy of religion, uh, one of the most debated, argued, uh, discussed topics in all of uh, the philosophy of religion. But Anselm, much as he did in his age, is making a reply to the traditional maxim uh, that only the fool in his heart says there is no God. And he, he points out that the fool who makes such an assertion as there is no God is confused. For if one has a conception of God, then one has a conception of, of a being who ex exists by necessity. One cannot have a thought about God if it is a thought about that which does not exist. Uh, in other words, a being whose non-existence is considered to be logically impossible must be greater than a being whose non-existence is logically possible. And I know this sounds very complicated, but his, his point is that there is a logical way of understanding the existence of God. That is even more relevant today uh, than you, can, you would argue than even in the time of Anselm, where Christian culture was everywhere. You found the whole basis of Western civilization was Christianity. Today, that is being challenged. It is being challenged by a, a kind of radical, rabid, secular approach in, in atheism. So the arguments, while highly complicated, are even more valid today than they were in his time. Now, how we use those arguments is something else. Now, we, we have to look at Anselm's argument as one piece of uh, a wider set of discussions because 
you know as well as I do, uh, so much of the classical way of approaching thought is no longer really applicable uh, in terms of the vocabulary of the modern mind. But yeah. for those of us who try to love the faith and try to defend the faith, understanding Anselm's argument is as crucial today as it was back then. Would it be too simplistic just to throw this out as an example of a very elementary way of looking at this is that that watchmaker argument where you can look at the makings of a Swiss watch and just by looking at the insides of it, you know that it had to have had a maker. It didn't come about by itself. Now we understand the universe and everything else is even more far more complex, the workings of nature and everything else far more complex than that Swiss watch. And so, yes, logic would tell you, absolutely, there is a maker. Because if there's a maker for a watch, there's got to be a maker for something that is uh, infinitely more complex. Yes, uh, I think that's absolutely uh, valid. And, you know, it comes back to that, that question of can we prove that God exists, especially today? And, you know, does reason enter into this? And there are those right now who would say, no, that the, the existence of God is a pure fantasy, that you can't argue by reason alone uh, that God exists. And yet that is exactly saints and scholars and uh, brilliant minds, minds significantly smarter than ours, uh, have been arguing for centuries. And... We live in an age of the glib and the flip. In other words, you, uh, how many times have you encountered that the question, can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Or if God created everything, who created God? You know, all of the things that you come across uh, in undergraduate philosophy courses or that you, you hear from sort of snarky teenagers who've, who've read a few things on the internet. Mm -hmm. Culturally, though, they represent a mindset that... Anselm helps to provide an answer to, and that is uh, that it is possible to use philosophy. It is possible to use the light of reason to establish the existence of God. And then, of course, you have uh, flowing from Anselm the effort to improve on it, which, of course, is the five ways of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, in establishing the arguments for God's existence. But so much of it really begins with Anselm's ontological argument uh, set down uh, at a time when we are supposedly uh, filled with ignorance and the darkness and uh, uh, rejection of all learning and understanding. Anselm's argument, whether one approves of it or not, whether one critiques it or not, was the starting point for profound discussions over the centuries. I mean, when you consider who criticized it or defended it, the, the list is incredible. Bonaventure, Duns the rationalist philosophers of the 16th and 17th centuries. I mean, think of René Descartes, Benedict Spinoza, Gottfried Leibniz. Even in the 20th century, famous names in the philosophy of religion for example, uh, Charles Hartshorn or, or Norman Malcolm and Alvin Plantinga, names that I'm going to guess very few of your listeners have ever heard of. These are figures uh, who have really focused much of their work on this one little argument, 
this, this ontological argument for the existence of God. So in that sense, too, uh, Anselm is owed a great debt for the wider intellectual stimulation of the West, but also for confronting philosophers with the obligation to answer him, to think about what he said, and to discuss in rational terms the existence of God. And that is something that we need to have today in culture. I wish we had more time to discuss the many contributions, again, that St. Anselm has given to the Church. In closing, though, Dr. Bunsen, what would you want to be the standout? Yeah, I think for, for us today, it's that gratitude for him for helping us to understand the arguments for God's existence, for his understanding of the doctrines of creation and the Trinity, uh, for his helping us to appreciate uh, the work of our Lord, especially in the work of Cordeus Homo uh, and the satisfaction, atonement. Uh, there are so many areas where Anselm left a mark, and we are grateful to him for that. Uh, we stand on in, in his legacy, and as the doctor of the church, uh, we owe him that debt, uh, but there is as well, as Pope Benedict says, this incentive to every Christian to seek an intimate union with Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and to meditate on God, to thank our Lord for everything that we have, and to remember that God exists. That's so crucial today at a time when so many question the very existence of God. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Great privilege to be with you, as always, Chris. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. 